I have talked to a lot of people uh, throughout this year, and especially these last couple months, and I hear the same theme, that they are just so ready for 2020 to be over with. It seems like it's the year that nobody really wanted. Um, it was supposed to be the perfect year, right? Because Vision 2020 is perfect vision. It was supposed to be the great year. And then, man, that really didn't last very long at all, did it? And, and this that uh, so many of us are ready to see this year go. And it's been, um, to borrow the word that everybody else has used, it's been an unprecedented year, man, that plans have been upended. Traditions have had to change or be completely canceled or redefined. And uh, we found ourselves kind of trying to navigate navigate waters that, man, we just weren't expecting at all. We, we just kind of were trying to find our way to do things differently and continue life as we were trying to do it. And so there are a lot of folks that are really looking forward to flipping that calendar over um, within a couple days here to 2021. Um, and so I know there's a lot of people that pick like a word of the year, and, and I'm, I don't usually do that. Um, but I know there's a lot of folks, they pick one word, they want to focus on this one word, they want to live this one word out uh, for this year. I know there's a lot of folks that do that. Um, and so if I had to pick a word of the year, something that I think we are desperate for in our world, something that we as a church are desperate for, as a, as a nation are desperate for, something that we all should as individuals be desperate for, I think the word that we should seek after is wisdom. And I don't know of a better place for us to, to do that than here in Scripture. And so we're going to look at a passage in James this morning. We're going to start in verse 2 and read through verse 11. Uh, but we're going to really focus this first part of this year, maybe the, the greater part of this year, on seeking after wisdom. And so we're going to be in James today. But after today, uh, just to give you a heads up where we're going, we're going to be in the book of Proverbs. It is the book of wisdom. And we're going to spend at least a good chunk of the year, probably most of the year, in that book. Because there is so much practical things, so many practical things that we need to understand uh, that God has given us insight to. Uh, we just need to understand them and then follow through with the insight that he's given us. And so we're going to start today with this idea of seeking wisdom in the new year. And where do we get wisdom from? How do we, uh, where does it come from? Uh, how do we ask for it? And those kind of things. So if you got your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to James chapter 1. We'll start in verse 2. We'll read down through verse 11. The words will be on the screens here beside me. Um, or you can follow along in your copy of God's Word. But James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But endurance must do its complete work, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. But let him who asks in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. The person should not, or excuse me, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. An indecisive person is unstable in all his ways. Verse 9, the brother of, her, of humble circumstances should boast in his exaltation, but the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. From the sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up the grass, its flowers falls off, and its beautiful appearance is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will, will wither away while pursuing his activities. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for today. 
And God, we know that we are ready to see 2020 go. We are ready for something new and something fresh. And, and God, for some of us, for a lot of us, God, this has just been a year that uh, we just didn't expect. And, and honestly, God, a year that uh, things that we encounter, we just didn't want to encounter. And so, God, I pray that as we prepare for this new year, God, I pray that we are doing it seeking after wisdom. I pray that we are seeking after a wisdom that comes from you. And so, God, as much as we want to see 2020 go, as much as we want to get out of this year and jump into the new year, God, I pray that we don't leave behind all that we should have learned in 2020. And so, God, I pray this morning that you will speak to us. I pray, God, that through your word, you will reveal truth to us, God, that we can seek after the wisdom that you offer to give us. God, the wisdom that you are offering and you are giving to us even in this moment. So, Father, I pray that as we work through this text, I pray that you are here. God, I pray that we seek your Holy Spirit and the words that he has for us this morning. God, let us feel your presence, whether we are gathered in this place or whether we are in our living room or in our our bedroom. God, wherever we may be, God, let your presence be so strong, God, that we can feel it amongst us. God, I pray that you'll speak. I pray that we will listen. And God, I pray ultimately that we will seek after the wisdom that you desire to give us, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A long time ago, there was a young boy named Harlan. And Harlan was the oldest of three other kids. And he lived on an 80-acre farm. And he was really young. And his mom, when he was really young, his mom was a stay-at-home mom. She had three kids. Harlan was the oldest of the three, like I said. And Harlan's dad, he was a farmhand. He worked the 80-acre farm. And he did that for the first three years of Harlan's life. And when Harlan was three, his dad had a tragic fall and broke his leg. And he couldn't work the farm anymore. Uh, So he had to find another job. um, And then his health kind of declined after that. And so within two years of Harlan's dad taking a job at a butcher in town, his dad passed away. So here's Harlan, who's the oldest of three kids whose dad just passed away at the age of, Harlan's five, and he is the oldest. And so Harlan's dad passed away, and there is his mom and three kids all under the age of five. And Harlan is the oldest one, and the mom has no income. She has no way to provide really for these kids, and so she has to provide for these kids some way. So she found a job. She took a job at a cannery in town, which meant that Harlan was the oldest one of the three kids at the age of five, had to start taking care of his siblings. And so his mom would actually leave sometimes for days and not come back. And Harlan would be in charge of getting food and collecting food and cooking food. Now, for us, that's really hard to imagine that such a young boy would be able to do those things. But he did it. In fact, by the age of seven, Harlan had mastered the skill of making bread and cooking vegetables simply because he had to to survive. When he moved on his skills a little further, uh, he began to learn how to butcher animals and cook meat and, and, and flavor the meat and all this stuff by the age of eight. So at eight, he was pretty much doing stuff that most teenagers wouldn't even dream of having to do or most adults wouldn't even have to dream of having to do to prepare for and care for this family and so he, he did this, and his mom got remarried, and uh, he kept trying to work on the farm and go to school at the same time, and it was just too much for him. And so at the age of 13, he dropped out of school. And he will tell you that algebra is the one that got him. He, algebra was just too much for him, and so he just quit. 
All right. So at the age of 13, he quit to go to work full-time at another family member, or another farm down the road. Um, and so for the next 30 years of his life, he got and lost several jobs. Now remember, he quit school at 13. One of my favorite jobs that he got, he was a lawyer with a 13-year-old education. But he lost that job because he got in a fist fight with his client in the courtroom. All right, so he got and he, he got several jobs that are just kind of unexpected jobs that somebody you wouldn't expect him to, to be able to have. And he lost several of those jobs partly because he just had this fiery temper that he just couldn't control. He lost some of those jobs because he also had some underlying health issues that he'd have to leave off work or get off work early and stuff like that. And so this, this years after years after years, all these jobs coming and going and coming and going. And so at the age of 40, Shell Oil Company offered Harlan a service station. And they said, we will let you run this service station rent-free. Okay, you can live here if you want to. You just have to pay us a certain percentage of the sale. And so he he thought this was a great idea. It was kind of a risk free thing. But he noticed there wasn't a lot of traffic. And so he decided that to to increase traffic at this gas station, he was going to start selling food on the side. And he didn't have to turn that money in. That was just his. And so he started selling meat and sandwiches and, and vegetables on the side and cooking for folks at his home and bring them there and uh, country ham and steaks and chicken and all this stuff. And, man, he started to draw this crowd to this, this uh, gas station. People really liked his food, and they started coming there, and things were going great. So great that he saved up enough money that he bought his own hotel and restaurant. And, and he, he bought it, and he started running it, and because of his fire temper, he realized that he wasn't the best boss man because he kept losing employees all the time. And things were going great until the restaurant caught on fire, and it burnt to the ground. And so there he was with absolutely nothing. So he started all over. He, he bought another restaurant um, a little off the, or, on the, or on the side of the highway, and, and things were going well for him again until World War II hit. And World War II hit, traffic at the restaurant died down. They put a new interstate in further down the road, and so there was no traffic coming through that town anymore. And so then he actually went bankrupt. He was living off his Social Security check of $105 a month. That was it. And so he decided that maybe he wasn't very good at owning a restaurant. He was going to give it one more try, and so he gave it one more try. And, and then after that restaurant failed, he said, listen, listen, my strength is not in running a restaurant, but I've got something here that I can teach people. And so what he did was he decided that instead of running a restaurant himself, because he wasn't a very good bossman, he decided what he would do is he would travel around the country and he would teach other people his secret recipe and this special method of how to cook his famous chicken. And so at the age of 73, Colonel Harlan Sanders sold Kentucky Fried Chicken for two million dollars. Now that was, in, in, that was a long time ago, so if you put that in today's time, it would be 16.5 million dollars. You see, the one thing that Colonel Harlan Sanders always reminded everybody he came up to was that you need to remember that every failure can be a stepping stone to something better. You see what Harlan Colonel San or Colonel Harlan Sanders, like so many other people have figured out, is that you don't waste the trials and struggles of your life. The, the, the trials and struggles that you endure are hard and they're difficult, and you really have two choices of how you're going to respond to them. You can either respond to them and, and be defined by them, or you can use them to point you in a better direction, to point you towards something great. And so for Harlan, 
Sanders, he decided that, that every failure was an opportunity to better himself. Every failure was something that, that he could be used to point him in a better direction. And so he found out, like he said, that cooking was not for him. But man, he sure could share his recipe. And he sure could share the method of cooking chicken. And he made millions of dollars. But it took all these failures to get him to realize that he shouldn't own a restaurant. It just wasn't in the cards for him. You see, learning from your failures, learning from trials is a great way for us to seek after wisdom. In fact, James tells us in verse 2, this is a great way that we can look for wisdom. He says, consider it great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials. Now, this is he uses some pretty specific language in that verse. And so we're going to work through this verse. We're actually going to do it backwards this morning. So we're going to start at the end and work our way back to the beginning. The first word is, the, or the last word of the verse is trials. Now, this, uh, this doesn't take a lot of explanation for us that are sitting here, us that are watching online. Trials is pretty simple. It is a pressure. It is a, a difficult situation. Uh, some translations would say temptation, but the word trial is actually a better idea. It's the image of this difficulty or this pressure that you're having to face and this weight that is being pushed down on you and making life difficult. It's, it's when you find yourself in a struggle, that things aren't easy anymore. When you're trying to get somewhere, this is what's holding you back. This is the trial. This is something that keeps you from getting where you want to go. Right? So we understand that. We also understand the next word that comes before that because he not just says one trial. He says various trials. Which means it's not just one, it's lots of different trials. Trials and weights coming at you in all different shapes and forms and, and from different places. James says, listen, you're not talking about just one little frustration here. You're not talking about one little inconvenience here. See, most of us wouldn't have a problem if we were dealing with just one thing at a time. Most of us, if we, if we just had one struggle, we would be okay. But he uses this word various because what he's telling you is that you're going to have lots of different struggles. You're going to have lots of different struggles. They're going to look different. Your struggles are going to look different from my struggles. and They're going to be shaped different. They're going to carry different weights. What, what is a huge struggle for you may be a small struggle for me. But you're going to have these things, these various struggles, these various pressures that you're going to feel. And they're not just going to be one, man. They're going to pile up over and over and on top of each other. And for many of us, this has been 2020. This is the reason we're so glad or wanting to turn the page off of 2020. Because let's be honest, 2020 has hit us over and over and over. It's like when you're in the ocean and you get knocked over by a wave and you can't just pop back up because what happens is another wave hits you and then another wave hits you. And they just keep coming. The ocean doesn't see you knocked over. And be like, oh, never mind. We'll just give him a break from now on. For some of you, that's what 2020 has felt like. Like you got knocked over by a wave, and then they just kept rolling in and rolling in and rolling in. It's one thing after another, and that's what James is talking about. These various trials. You didn't just get hit with one, man. You got hit with a lot of stuff. A lot of it's happened this year, and so for some of us, for a lot of us, that's why we're so looking forward to 2021. Because man, we are tired of these trials. We are tired of all these weights, these things that we didn't expect, we didn't see coming, and man, they are just really taking a toll on us. They are weighting us down so much. But then we back up just a little bit more in the verse to the phrase right before this. And he says, whenever you experience these various trials. This is important because notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say if you experience these various trials. He says whenever 
you do. See, when you use that word whenever, there's this expectation that this is going to happen. If you use if, it's conditional. Like it may happen, it may not. But when he uses this word whenever, it means it's going to happen. And this is important because for some reason, there's this misunderstanding out there in the world. And maybe even inside the church, there's this misunderstanding that we as Christians are immune to certain trials. That the world has all these other things going on with it that we are never going to be affected by because we're Christians. That the world has struggles and the world has difficulties that we don't have, that we're never going to face because we became church members. And I want to share with you that if you became a Christian, if you signed up to be a Christian because somebody told you life was going to be easy, if you signed up to be a Christian because it was going to be easy street, that, that all of your problems were going to melt away when you became a Christian, somebody lied to you. Is all I can tell you. And James makes it clear that, listen, these trials are going to happen. They're going to happen to you. In fact, I would dare say that us as Christians probably face more trials than the rest of the world does. And so if you signed up to be a Christian because you thought life was going to be easy, you're wrong. If you signed up because you thought everything was going to melt away, there's a problem with that. You're going to experience these pressures. You're going to experience these trials, these hard times. And you're going to experience them probably in a deeper capacity than the rest of the world does. We shouldn't be surprised by this. In fact, I had this conversation when all this pandemic and all these uh, the lockdowns and all this started. You know, this idea that we as church, we weren't going to have to worry about this. And I didn't hear that from this church, but I heard that from other pastors and other church leaders. Of You know, we're never going to have to worry about that. And I thought, who in your right mind thinks that you, because a church member, is never going to get sick? You as a church member or pastor is never going to have to deal with a virus. And so I tell you that because there are churches today that are closed today who thought they were never going to have to deal with this. And I thought, man, why did you think you were immune to it? What made you thought that, think you that you had some kind of booster shot of vaccine that nobody else had? That's not what you got when you got Jesus. You know what you got when you got Jesus? The first part of the verse. Consider it joy. When the trials come. He didn't say consider joy because you ain't got no trials coming. That's not what he says. He says when you're in the midst of the trials, you're not going to avoid these trials. Look, they're going to happen to you. But when they do happen to you, this is a natural occurrence. Consider it joy. Great joy. Now, i got to be honest with you. That's the exact opposite of what most of us do when we're in the trials, when we're in the pressure, when all the weight's on us and we are so uh, pressured that we can't hardly even move. Joy is probably the last thing that comes to our mind. And during those times that we have this time, this struggle, and so he's telling you, listen, in the midst of all of this and these weights that are pressing you down and all the pressures that you're feeling, the hard times you're feeling, consider them great joy. And I read that verse here at the last Sunday of 2020, and I got to look back and I got to say, wait a second, you're telling me, James, that I'm supposed to look back over this last year, I'm supposed to look back over 2020 and be like, woohoo! Consider great joy. I'm supposed to be excited about 2020. i got to be honest with you. There's been some great things that have happened in 2020. There's been families that have, have, have increased. There's been marriages that have happened. There's been some great things, small things that have happened in 2020. But I don't know anybody that circles 2020 on their calendar like this was the greatest year of my life. I don't know anybody that that's happened to. Okay, That might have been the greatest thing in your life, like the greatest thing. Man, but I don't know anybody that's so overjoyed about 2020. But this is the crazy thing because this is what 
James is telling us, consider it great joy. And how do we do that? Why do we do that? Why would he tell us at the end of all these trials and all this terrible year that we've gone through that we should look back over it and say there's joy in all of it? Now notice he doesn't say enjoy it. He doesn't say feel good about it. He just says consider it joy. There's a difference there. See, we consider it joy because there's lessons that God has been teaching us through this year. There's lessons that we should have learned through these trials that either we couldn't learn or we didn't learn any other year. Think about that. God has showed us as a church, God has showed us as individuals, things this year that we didn't learn any other time. Could we have? Quite possibly. But it took something like this to get it through our heads. Now, some of us are hard-headed. In fact, I've seen the meme on Facebook. You can better believe that if I learned a lesson, I learned it the hard way. For some of us, 2020, it's been the hard way. It's taken us this to learn what God is. So listen to me. Don't waste the trials because sometimes they are God's way of leading you or teaching you something great or leading you to something better. Sometimes the best way and the only way that we can get through a trial and a difficulty is know that we're going to learn something at the end of it. We consider it joy because there's a greater purpose for the pressures that we're facing. You see, that's what he says in verse 3. In verse 4, this is how we count it joy. In verse 3, he says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance is the result of the trials and the struggles. But let me give you kind of this physical example that applies to your faith as well. If, if, if you decided, for some crazy reason, that you wanted to run a marathon, okay? Just for whatever reason, you decide that you wanted to run a marathon then you're just going to sit at your house, and so you're going to go online tonight because you decide you're going to run a marathon. You can go online, and you can sign up for a marathon anywhere in the world pretty much. Okay? So let's say you're going to sign up for a marathon. We're just going to pick uh, May. And, and you're going to sign up for a marathon in May because you think between now and May you're going to be ready to go for this marathon. So you're going to sign up for this thing. You're going to pay the registration fee for it, and then you're just going to sit back and you're going to do nothing between now and May. And you're just going to wait for that magical day to appear when all of a sudden you're going to run 26.2 miles. Right? No, it's not going to work that way. Because I would dare say that if, if that was your training plan, you're probably not going to make it 26.2 miles. See, I, I've, I've met people that do these crazy things. I, I've known a few of them. In fact, I'm married to one and I watched her do a couple of them. And, and so... When someone decides they're going to run that distance, they start this training plan, and they start it months in advance. Some of them start even longer in advance than that. And you know what? The first day, it doesn't start with 26 miles. The first day starts with, like, run for 30 minutes, or run for 2 miles, or 3 miles, or something like that. You see, you don't start with this huge end, uh, the 26 miles. When you start with it, this small small distance, and then you work your way up. You start that way because there's strain and there's stress on your muscles. And the only way those muscles are ever going to get to 26.2 miles is if you give them a little bit of stress and you give them a little bit of rest. And you get a little bit more stress and a little bit of rest. You see, not only your muscles, but your lungs and your heart. Your heart can't go 26.2 miles if it's only made it two miles. It's not ready for that. And the only way it gets ready is if you stress it and you work it and then you give it rest. And you stress it and you work it and give it rest. That's how you build up to that. And so the whole point of the training plan is that you are stressing and you're putting pressure on it and then you relieve the pressure. It's exactly what he's saying in this verse. He says, listen, the only way you're going to build up endurance is if we put pressure on you, we put stress on you, and then we back it off a little bit. 
And so when you're in these trials, there's this, this endurance that's going to be built up. You're going to be able to endure these things because you've had a little bit of stress and it's backed off. A little bit of stress and backed off. Then he goes on in verse 4 and he says, but this endurance isn't the, this isn't the goal. Okay, But endurance must do its complete work. So that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. You see, endurance is not the goal of training. Maturity and completion are the goal of training. It's it's where all the puzzle pieces fit perfectly together. Nobody trains for a marathon to run 25 miles. Okay, Uh, The distance of a marathon is 26.2. And I'll even tell you that nobody trains for a marathon to run 26 miles. They train to run the 26.2. Because at the 26.2 miles is when you're finished. It's when you're complete. It's when you get that medal and the bragging rights to say you are like 1% of the population of the world who's done this crazy thing. Nobody does it for 26 miles. They do it to completion. Okay? Because I want you to imagine, let's say that you did this training thing, all right? You, you trained and you put all the time and effort into it and you decide on race day, instead of doing the 26.2, you're just going to do 26 miles. And so you're going to get from about here to about those back doors, and you're just going to be stop. I'm done. And you're going to turn around and walk off. That'd be the craziest thing ever, wouldn't it? Like, to do all that, and then to sit back and be like, man, I, I really wasted a lot of time and energy not to go that much further. To complete this. To finish this. So that I can accomplish what I set out for. You see, the only way that you're going to get the 26.2 miles is to have the endurance to do it. But the endurance is not the goal. The goal is the wholeness, the completion of it. And the only way to get that is through the trials that we go through that produces the endurance that gets you to completion. That's the lessons that we learn. That's the wisdom of the trials that you're going through. See, there's things in the trials that you're never going to learn any other way. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says, trials can prove a wonderful work of God in us. I look back, or excuse me, I have looked back on times of trials with a kind of longing, not to have them return, but to feel the strength of God that I have felt in them, to feel the power of faith that I have Felt in them to hang on to God's powerful arm as I hung on to them in the trials, and to see God at work as I saw Him working in the trials. You see, sometimes we've got to be in the trials to feel the presence of God. Sometimes we've got to be in the trials to see God working. Sometimes we've got to be in the trials to feel the closeness and the strength of God. Those are the lessons we learn in the trials of our faith and in the trials of our life. And so if we're going to seek after wisdom in this new year, we've got to look back and sometimes realize that don't waste the trials of this past year. That God hasn't brought you through this for nothing. He's brought you through this for endurance so that you can be complete and mature. God has brought you this far to teach you something, to teach you some lessons. So these trials produce endurance. Endurance brings us to completion, which brings us to wholeness. This is bringing us to the place where God wants us to be. And so trials and the fires that, that we have been through are for a reason. And so I want you to understand that sometimes being on the other end of it, looking back and saying, listen, God, you brought me through this To teach me something. You see, sometimes the best way to prepare for the future is to look back to the past and the trials and the fires that God has already brought you through. There's great wisdom in what God has brought you through to prepare you for what you're going into. 
You see, and if we're going to seek wisdom for the 2021 year, then we got to look back at the trials of 2020 and don't waste those trials. Look for the wisdom that was there the whole time. And see, there's a second thing that we can do when we seek after wisdom, and simply we got to ask for it. You see, when we have trials, we learn from those things. But there's times when we get to a situation that is all new to us. That we have no paradigm, we have no way to, 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 we have no backdrop for it. In fact, I had a friend who had a teenage son one time. And he looked at the teenage son after the teenage son got in trouble and he said, well, what do you think you should do? What, what do you think a, a 16-year-old boy should do in this situation? And the 16-year-old boy looked at him and said, well, Dad, I don't know. He's like, what do you mean you don't know? You're, you're old enough now. You should be making these decisions. You should know what to do. What do you think you should do? He said, well, Dad, I don't know. I've never been a 16-year-old boy before. What should I do? And the dad looked at him as honestly as he could, and he said, I don't know. Well, Dad, what do you mean you don't know? You're the dad. You're supposed to have all the answers. And he said, well, I've never been the dad of a 16-year-old boy before. This is all new to us, to both of us. We're going to have to figure this out together. Some of your parents, you figure that out real quick. It's easy to look at everybody else's parent, but all of a sudden when it's you, you're like, whoa, this is different. This is new. I remember when we had our first daughter, we, we had her in, in the hospital, and things were great, and all of a sudden, they're like, all right, you ready to go home? And we're like, whoa, who's going with us? Like, who's taking this baby? Who, who's going to, what do we, we're going to do this by ourselves now? Like, this is different. We don't have, a, we don't have a, a framework to work in this concept. This is new. This is different. And so when we face something new that we don't have a trial to, to, to go back onto, we've got another source. We've got something else that we can look for. You see, we've got to ask for wisdom. You see, there's situations that we don't have a framework for, we don't have a backdrop for, and all we have to do is simply ask for wisdom. When I was in college, I learned real quick that there were two types of professors. There's professors that want you to, to know, and they want you to question, and they want you to figure things out. And so there's professors that when they're talking, they really do want you to raise your hand and ask questions. And I found out there's other professors that do not. All right? There are other professors that when they're up there talking and when they're up there lecturing, you don't dare ask them a question. And i got to be honest with you, I learned that by watching another classmate make that mistake. Okay? Because there was a certain professor at the school I went to, and, and he was that type of professor. Man, he, when he started his lecture, you just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. That's all you did. And when class was over, you got up and you walked out. Okay, and, and so we were sitting in class one day, and, and, and he just started, and he was going and going and going and going, and we were about three-fourths of the way done with the class, and all of a sudden, this kid raises his hand. And like, we didn't, we didn't, and we'd never seen anybody raise their hand in that class because we were too busy writing. I don't know how you had time to put your pencil down to raise your hand, but all of a sudden, this hand goes up, and the professor looks up, and he just stops. And he looks at this young man, and he says, do you have something to add to my discussion and the student just asked a question. And it wasn't a complicated question. And, and, like, I remember after that student asked that question, you could have heard a pin drop in that room. And the professor just stared at him. And then he started asking him questions, like, in reverse. Like, he just started blasting him with questions and things that he should have known. And so much so that the young man just kind of sat there, like, blank face, had no clue of how to answer these questions, was just completely lost. And that's how class finished. That was the rest of class, was him just berating the student, making an example of him. And he ended this way. As soon as class was over, he said, I suggest 
that the next time you have a question, you better make sure you've read the material before you come to class. If not, there are graduate assistants for that. Don't you ever interrupt my lecture again. And i got to be honest with you, we learned that day never to interrupt that professor again. We learned by a trial that somebody else made, okay? That they made a mistake and we learned we don't dare do that. But see, fortunately for us, that's not the kind of God that we serve. We have a God who knows all. We have a God who has all the answers. And, and, but that's not the God that, that stops you. You see, I find it so interesting. What I think back of after being a teacher, it's a shame that the man in front of the class who had all the answers wouldn't let you ask the questions that you needed to know. It's like he didn't want you to have the information that he had. But see, that's not what God is. That's not how God does. In fact, James tells us that God is the complete opposite of that. In fact, in, fact, in verse 5, he says, Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously without criticizing, and it will be given to him. James says, listen, God's not like this college professor. Instead, he invites you and he encourages you to ask for wisdom. He wants you to come to him when you have questions. He wants you to come to him when there's something you don't understand. He wants you to bring your problems to him when you don't have the answers. He wants you to come to him. He is generous and he's not going to criticize you. He's not going to beg you with questions or, or slam you with questions. He's never going to embarrass you or try to make an example out of you. He, he's never going to look at you and be like, you should know that already. He's never going to do that. He's going to give you wisdom that you ask for. And the great thing about asking God for wisdom is that when He gives you wisdom, it's the best wisdom. It's the wisdom from above. And there's a beautiful part of James. James is kind of funny when he writes his letter because he talks about wisdom here at the beginning, and then he doesn't pick it up again until chapter 3. And in chapter 3, he draws this contrast between wisdom from here on earth and wisdom from above. And he says in James chapter 3, Verse 14 and 15, he says, But if you have bitter envy or selfish ambitions in your heart, don't brag and deny the truth. Verse 15, Such wisdom does not come from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That's pretty strong words. He says, If wisdom is causing you to brag or wisdom is causing you to build up envy, then it is than you do. So I'm better than you. If wisdom allows you to elevate yourself and downplay somebody else, that's not godly wisdom. That's wisdom from this world, and he calls it demonic wisdom. It is elevating yourself kind of wisdom. But see, the wisdom that God gives is wisdom from above, and he describes that in verse 17 of verse, or chapter 3. He says, It is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy. This is the kind of wisdom that we are seeking after. This is the kind of wisdom that's available to us when we are willing to ask God for. Wisdom that is pure kind of world I want to live in. I want to live in a world that is defined as pure. I want to live in a world that's defined by peace-loving, that's gentle, that's compliant, that's full of mercy. That's not just the world I want to live in. That's what I want to be. So if you want goals for 2021, let it be that. But the way you're going to get that is through asking God for wisdom. And when we ask Him for wisdom, we have to ask with a confidence. Not in our ability to ask, but our ability to receive confidence or, or in, from Him that we're asking for. He says in verse 6 and verse 7, James says this. He says, But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. He goes on in verse 7, he says, That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. You see, he says you're going to ask for wisdom. You've got to have faith in two things. One, you've got to have faith in God. And you've got to have faith that God is going to give you good wisdom. The best 
wisdom. And if you doubt either one of those two things, if you doubt that God is going to give it to you, or you doubt that He's going to give you the good answers, then you shouldn't ask. And you shouldn't really expect anything. So let me put it to you this way. Let's imagine that, that you're in a passenger seat of a car, and, and you're going somewhere with a friend, and that friend looks at you and says, hey, have you got the directions of where we're going? And you say, yeah, I programmed the, phone, I programmed the, the address into my phone. I got the GPS directions. And so they said, great. And so you pull up and you start the car. They start the car and you start driving. You come to a stop sign. And your GPS says to turn right at the stop sign. So the driver pulls up the stop sign. And they say, where do we go from here? And you say, well, the GPS says to turn right. Great. And they turn left. You're like, well, maybe they didn't hear me. And so then they keep driving and keep driving. And they get to another stop sign. And they look at you again. And they say, all right, so what direction say now? Where am I supposed to go now? And you say, well, the GPS directions say to turn left. And the driver looks down to the left side of the road, and he looks back to the right, and he said, No, nah, I've been down that road. That road's rough. You don't want to go down there. It's too bumpy. So he turns right. And you're like, Well, okay, maybe he knows. And then you come to another stop sign, and they ask you again. He says, what, where, do we, where do we go now? He said, Well, the GPS says to turn right now. The directions say, If we're going to get where we want to go, we need to turn right. And instead he says, Nah, I don't like that way. I'll just go straight instead. And then all of a sudden, he gets to another stop sign and he looks at you and says, which way should we go? you got a couple of choices at that moment. You probably, if you're like me, you look at me like, does it really matter if I tell you which way to go? Because you're just going to pick your own way anyway. All right? That's exactly the answer I would give you at that point. Okay? The other answer I would give you is I would just give you the phone back here. You, you just make it up as you go because that's what you're doing. All right? So for me, I would quit giving those answers because it's not making a difference for what you're doing anyway. The other thing that's going to happen is that person's going to keep driving around and driving around and driving around. So half a day is spent on half a a tank of gas is spent. And you're not anywhere closer where you want to be. And then finally, let's say you do somehow end up with where you're supposed to be. And the driver is, you're so late at this point. The driver looks at your phone. The GPS says, stupid thing. I knew he could never get us where we wanted to go. See, that's crazy, right? None of us would do that. Except that's exactly what we do with God all the time. We ask Him for wisdom, and then we don't trust the answers that He gives us. We ask Him, God, what should I do in this situation? And then we doubt the answer that He gives us. And we do this over and over and over. Or He gives us a very clear answer, and He says, turn right. And we're like, no, 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 I've seen right. That's a rough road. We don't like that road. That's an uncomfortable road. What if we just go left instead? We'll get there eventually, right? And all the time, God's like, listen, you ask for it, and you're not listening to it. And so he tells you that if you're going to doubt the wisdom that he gives you, just quit asking for it. Don't expect that God's going to keep giving you the answers that you're asking for if you're not willing to take the answers that he gives you. That's what he talks about. You're like the surging sea that's just driven by the wind. They mean you're just not getting anywhere. This is what he talks about when he says the double-minded doubter, the indecisive person in verse 8. This is what he's talking about. That God gives us wisdom, but we don't take it, either because we don't trust God or we just don't like the wisdom that he gives us. So James says, listen, if you're not going to listen, don't do it. Don't even ask for it. You might as well just be in the sea and floating around. Because you're, that's where your, your direction is. You have no purpose and no direction. See, if we're going to seek wisdom in this year, we need to learn to seek wisdom that comes from above. But then we've got to learn to trust that wisdom without doubting, A, the one it's coming from, or B, that is good and is pure and is gentle. See, we have to express the confidence in Him when we ask Him for wisdom. And the last thing that we learn from this verse is that part of the reason so many people don't have confidence in or wisdom is because they simply let pride get in the way. 
He goes on in verse uh, the, the last part of this passage, and he draws this contrast between a humble person and a proud person, but he does it in kind of a financial way. In verse 9 and verse 10, he sets up this contrast. In verse 9, he says, The brother of humble circumstances should boast in his exaltation. See, those that are in a lowly position, those are, that are not well off, they should take joy in their exaltation, that they're, that they're being lifted up. right? And then he flips it around in verse 10. He says, but the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower in the field. So, so let's connect this back to wisdom. You see, the humble person, they don't mind doing what it says in verse 5. The humble person who's low, they don't mind asking for wisdom because when you're low, the only way up is up. Okay? The only direction you have to go is up. And so someone in a low position, whether financially or, or, or in any other means of that word, they don't mind asking for help. They don't mind asking for wisdom because they're trying to better themselves. They're trying to be lifted up by God. But a rich person, they're often prideful. Not all rich people, but a lot of rich folks are prideful. And they don't ask for wisdom because, let's be honest, we don't need it. I'm smart enough. I've already got what I need, right? Money makes me happy. I already got this amount of money, and I'm good to go. And so why would I need to ask for wisdom if I've already got what I want? If I already got what I think I need? And so they will never achieve wisdom because they're never going to ask. The prideful person is never going to ask for it. In fact, they're going to get mad when they don't receive it. But a humble person is going to ask and they're going to receive and they're going to get blessed. They're going to get lifted up from that low position. See, but the rich person, they've come to this point in their life where ultimately they realize their humiliation is they're going to die just like everybody else. That they're going to be like the flower, and one dead flower in a field is just like any other dead flower in the field. See, as much as you want to boast and brag about your wealth, it's not going to get you where you need to go. In fact, even Colonel Sanders figured this out, because another one of his famous quotes is him of this. He says, there is no reason to be the richest person in the cemetery. You can't do any business from there after all. You see, if we are so prideful that we have achieved all of this by ourselves, if we're so prideful that we let, stand, we, let, we let it stand in our way of seeking wisdom, that we look around us and we say that we've got all this stuff, we did all this ourselves, why do we need to ask God for wisdom? Because we've got everything we need, we've forgotten that the only reason you've got anything is because God gave it to you in the first place. You didn't earn any of it. You got it by His grace. And until you realize that, then you're going to be ready because He could at any moment take that away from you. So don't let pride stand in the way of you asking for wisdom that He's longing to give you. So I'd love to tell you that 2021 is going to be the greatest year of your life. I'd love to tell you that 2021 is going to be so much better than 2020. But I can't. I don't know that. Okay, I don't have any kind of prophetic vision. I don't have any kind of uh, way to tell you what the future holds or anything like that. But here's what I can tell you. That regardless of what 2021 holds for you as an individual, for us as a nation, for us as a world, because the calendar changes, God never does. And the wisdom that He offered us thousands of years ago that we're going to dive into in the next few weeks and next few months in the book of Proverbs. The wisdom that he gave thousands of years ago is from above. And it is just as good today as it was thousands of years ago when he gave it. The answers that you're looking for are in this book that we're going to give, that we're going to dive into. And so if we're going to spend 2021 doing anything, I pray that we spend it seeking after him. Seeking after the wisdom that He's given us so that we can seek after it and it will change our lives forever. So this year, let's not waste the trials.
But let's seek after the wisdom that he gives. Let's pray together.